0: Welcome, everyone. We have today's session of the Medical Liability Minute. I'm pleased to be conversing with Ike Devji. I'm going to spell that name for you. It's I-K-E. That's the easy part, Devji. D-E-V as in Victor, J-I. He is an asset protection attorney based in Phoenix, although he has clients all across the country. A little bit about Ike. Um, He does asset protection, wealth preservation, and risk management, and The sole focus uh, of him has been asset protection, wealth preservation, and risk management as opposed to the collection of dabblers that are out there, the dilettantes. So this is all he does, and he's been doing it for at least uh, the last 16 years. I would would say he's probably one of the most experienced attorneys in the Southwest who addresses this particular topic. The client base of about 5,000, many of which several thousand of which um, are physicians, and that represents about $5 billion in personal assets, which I will admit was more than I made last year. Anyway, welcome to the podcast, Ike.
1: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure
0: to be with you this morning. All right, so asset protection, that is a, a broad topic. It means a lot of things to a lot of different physicians for for, well, physicians walk around with a target on their back. They walk around with a target on their back for a variety of reasons, the most obvious of which is professional liability, but certainly it's not the only uh, target that they have. Uh, when I talk to physicians, they say, no, I don't need to worry about asset protection. My asset protection plan is I have everything in my wife's name. So we're going to use that as a starting point <laughs> for for how common that is, and number two, why that is or i'm guessing you're going to say is not a great asset protection strategy
1: well i'm i'm, I'm glad you started with that one that is a a common myth uh, that unfortunately many physicians are operating under where what i hear very often is is exactly what you said i don't own anything mm-hmm. and then when i delve a little deeper i said well okay i understand that you, you do you actually not own anything Well, it's all in my wife's name, or it's all in my husband's name, or even worse, it's all in the name of one of our children or another relative, for instance, the brother, the brother-in-law. And in those cases, what we see is that people who feel that they have high risk levels, high liability, and significant assets are giving assets to other people to hold in their name in what I guess we would call a constructive trust setup. With the hope that that person is not going to run off with that money, die with that money and leave it to somebody else, uh, divorce you and take those assets, and that this ineffective transfer in most cases would actually be a shield against a creditor. So we have a whole bundle of mistakes to unwrap in that one statement, I don't own anything.
0: So, so you would need, a, so at the very least, if you engage that strategy, you would need at the very least a crystal ball. You would need to be able to determine that going forward, that the wonderful, loving relationship that you know everything about will continue to be a loving, trusting relationship till the end of your life. Is that an accurate statement?
1: Well, absolutely, it's accurate, and it's and it's still incomplete. Um, you know, like I said. First of all, let's talk about this. what I gave it, the phrase I gave it to someone actually means. If you give your spouse assets that are either community property, if you're in a community property state, or marital property, if you're not in a community property state, in order for that gift to be effective, you have to do more than just change the title to their name. There should be a post-nuptial agreement. Uh, that specifies the transfer of those assets and the condition of that transfer or any conditions attached to it. Uh, and it should be memorialized and formal among other issues. If you're giving it to someone other than a spouse, if the gift or the asset is worth more than, let's, let's call it roughly $15,000, in order for that to be a completed gift, you also have to fill out a gift tax return or you are committing tax fraud. <laughs> so those are two issues just on the transfer itself. So merely taking the home that you bought and paid for during the course of your marriage and, uh, and then retitling it um, in, in your spouse's name without any of those other formalities is a mistake. And if you're giving it to a third party, it's not even a valid gift unless you've gone through those steps that I said. And then, as I said, if the person to whom you gave it, if it is your spouse leaves you, uh, if you've done those things and formally made that transfer and the marriage ends, are you then going to go back to court and say to the judge, we titled all of these assets in my wife's name and I signed this post-nuptial agreement saying that it really was her separate property, but we were just lying in an effort to, to try and evade creditors. And I really meant to keep that money. And so the marital estate, now that we're getting divorced, should not be divided along the lines of that document that was filed three years ago.
0: I'm sure the other spouse's divorce attorney would love facts exactly like that as they're trying and, to finalize the settlement.
1: And there have been a number of cases where this has actually happened, and it has turned out poorly for the person who transferred the assets away from themselves, as you can probably guess. Uh, The other issue is that, obviously, if that person dies, whoever it is, whether it's a spouse or any other third party to whom you've transferred the assets, they have the right, if they hold title, to transfer those assets to anyone they want upon their death, or even worse... If they don't have an estate plan, the state will decide who gets those assets, uh, and they will give it to whoever is next in line under the rules of inheritance and and so on and so forth in that jurisdiction. And then finally, remember that this transfer is not a liability shield as as much as it is a liability swap. So if that person to whom you transfer these assets Gets sued, gets in their own car accident, goes through their own bankruptcy, goes through their own divorce, then your assets are subject to their liability. So, for every possible reason, just handing property to somebody else and pretending that you've implemented an asset protection strategy is nonsense.
0: So, this is not a game for amateurs. Let's just take a step back. Let's talk about what is asset protection and how does asset protection differ from bread and butter, estate planning? And I'm assuming there's some overlap between the two, but why don't you use that as a foundation?
1: Well, that's a great question. And again, you're you're hitting another key point where we see really smart, successful doctors make dumb mistakes. Um, And it's either because they're just not aware of the facts and they're not attorneys, so we understand that, or they've been misadvised through social media, through a friend or a colleague, uh, so, yes, let's let's talk about the difference. So I think the easiest way to explain the difference between asset protection and just core traditional estate planning, mm-hmm. both of which are absolutely necessary, is that estate planning is death planning. Who gets my assets when I die? Who's in charge? How are they distributed? Do we have an estate tax exposure if we're lucky enough to have that problem and are worth over $22 million? Great. How are we going to handle that? Uh, those are the things, some of the things that estate planning handles, of course, in addition to creating things like living wills and medical powers of attorney and naming guardians for your minor children, all of those are vital. But what most people do is they spend a lifetime planning only for their death and not for their life. So you can have this elaborate death plan, the estate plan, but unless you have taken steps to ensure that there is actually going to be money left to pour into it, Mm-hmm. so that all of those detailed dreams and wishes for your family come true, it's kind of moot. You've you've marked the, the spot on the treasure map where the treasure is, but mm-hmm. you haven't provided any of the steps to get there or any indication of where that actually is. Um, and so that is the sort of life planning versus death planning difference between the two. Any competent asset protection plan, which I say plan, because it's dangerous for us to talk about asset protection as a thing. It is not a trust. It is not a partnership. It is not a corporation. It's not the, uh, it's not an offshore trust that I might put in place for somebody who's financially qualified. It is all of those things and a comprehensive defensive insurance program Mm -hmm. of multiple layers. And first and foremost, it's what I call clean living three layers of asset protection. If we start at the top are Number one, what I call clean living. Let's not do stupid things that get us sued in the first place. Let's have compliance standards. Let's be good leaders. Let's enforce good habits in our practices or our businesses. Let's hold our families accountable when they're not acting in a way that reduces liability. So that's the first layer is clean living and habits and compliance. So, so the second clean layer is insurance. Food.
0: So clean living would also include don't take crazy, unnecessary risk, or to the extent that you're aware of the risk, do what you can to mitigate it. You know, um, I could think of a thousand things that would fall into that category, but those are probably the easiest things to do, correct?
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, the first rule of the martial arts is not win the fight, it's avoid the fight, right? So (laughs) if you look down a dark alley and see a bunch of thugs in the dark uh, swinging baseball bats. Do you figure out how to go down that alley and fight those guys? Or do you look for a better, for a better route?
0: <laughs> I know uh, what I would pers- do.
1: <laughs> per- personally, I'd go around it. Um, you know, but there are circumstances where that's not possible. Right. So if we go back to our three layer analogy, yes, it's first, it's avoid the harm. Mm-hmm. Then it's be insured against the harm. And we're going to talk some more about insurance, I'm sure. And then finally, at the bottom, the last layer is the legal tools, which are the last line of defense, never the first line of defense. If our risk management and our insurance fail, then let's have some real strong legal tools in place to make those assets uh, legally distinct from yourself and from your personal and professional liability.
0: And it sounds like um, the insurance component and the legal tools work um, hand in glove with each other. Let me explain what I mean by that. If you are, and I'll use the word bulletproof, but I know you're never completely bulletproof, but if you have a bulletproof legal strategy and you have plenty of insurance, what you're telling the other side is that I have insurance, I can make a payment, I need you to be reasonable. I don't have unlimited insurance, there's a cap on what the insurance will pay out, and these legal tools will serve as a backstop to prevent you from leveraging me to the end of the earth and sucking me dry and taking taking all my net worth. Is that how they can potentially, and I know I'm jumping ahead here, but I just wanna make sure that um, we, we do talk about how they work with each other, they're not separate layers, they're layers that um, complement one another.
1: Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. And what we find is that again, many consumers make the same mistake with insurance that they do with asset protection, right? So insurance isn't a single thing. It is not one policy. It is not your MedMail policy. It is not your umbrella policy that only covers you against your home and automobile related risks in most cases. It is both of those things to the right limits that cover all of the right details and that have the right expertise Mm -hmm. um, that's been obtained in getting the policies in place in the first place and avoiding things like saying that, yes, we have coverage on three different issues, but those coverages all share share the same limit. So it's the same pool of money covering both my medical malpractice exposure, covering my HIPAA and data breach exposure, Mm -hmm. and covering my employee lawsuit exposure for instance. That would be a mistake.
0: So um, let's go back to the foundational basics. Um, What are the asset protection basics that apply to absolutely everyone? I know that the more assets you have in play, the more complicated or complex the asset protection strategy may be, but um, I, I would argue that asset protection is something a graduating Resident or fellow should at least start thinking about, but of course, their strategy will pale in comparison to the strategy for someone who's been out in practice for 20, 25 years and has significant assets that have accumulated.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So that, that's a that's a great way to approach it, Jeff. So let's take let's take two different examples. Let's say we're talking to one doc who's you know a baby doc who's 30 years old, and yeah. then another doc who's 55, and he has a mid seven figure net worth and the thirty year old has um, twenty five thousand dollars in the bank and three hundred grand in student debt. Okay. Are those two fair are those two fair stereotypes to start with?
0: I think they're brilliant, <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> okay. So
0: Sad there are true. some things
1: that Yeah. So there are some things that both of those individuals should have in place and that apply to everybody. First and foremost, for any licensed professional, in most cases, their single biggest asset is their ability to earn. So high limits of disability insurance are something that we discuss with every single client. We make sure that they have it in place and have considered it. And And again, I don't sell insurance.
0: And the younger the doctor, the cheaper it will be. You don't want to wait until you develop health problems to jump into the game with disability. So, um, although it seems like a big expense early in one's career, because the likelihood of needing to tap into disability insurance is great over the length of one's career, it's kind of a no-brainer.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And and look, let, let's let's take exactly what you said about the expense issue, which is the big deterrent, right? Everybody loves having insurance. Nobody wants to pay for it. I get Mm -hmm. that. And I don't sell insurance. I'm an attorney, but I sure make people buy it. So that 55-year-old doc that we talked about, if he had to stop working, of course, um, 10 years before he planned to at the age of 55, let's say, he has seven figures in assets. He can probably still retire he can still keep his kid in college he can still keep his health insurance and mm-hmm. you know many of the other things that he had planned for himself
0: not a catastrophe but our, just a problem right. it, it's, it,
1: it's not a catastrophe it, or or even if it is a catastrophe it's a survivable one exactly. but our 30 year old doc who doesn't want to spend that money yet um, or doesn't want to have the limits that he or she should uh, is looking at something much different. They haven't had 25 years to work, save, invest, make mistakes, and then do it again better. Uh, they don't have anything saved. And all of their future wealth is dependent on their ability to earn. So I think protecting that asset, your ability to earn, and the value of what you spent so many years in school doing is first and foremost An asset protection measure that applies to everybody and it applies to both of those examples the next vital universally applicable asset protection tool is a seven-figure personal liability umbrella policy in the last 30 days jeff i have turned away four separate clients who were referred to me by their own attorneys after They had incurred some significant liability um, that was not related to their medical practice.
0: Give an example.
1: So, uh, all four of them were 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 car accidents.
0: Wow. And we all drive. Uh, We have had everybody drive. Everybody,
1: everybody drives. Everybody lives somewhere, whether you rent or own. Um, You know, people have dogs. People have kids. People have stairs people have pools, mm-hmm. uh, people have hot tubs, and of course, people have cars. And all of these things are things that create liability. Um, right now, also, we are in what is the middle of, of what is called the hundred deadliest days, the period from uh, Memorial Day to Labor Day, where we have the highest number of automobile-related fatalities during the year. Uh, this hundred deadliest days uh, when everybody's on vacation and your kids are on vacation and everybody's home from college, driving mom and dad's car and using the boat and using the lake house, all of these kinds of things. Uh, and what we routinely are shocked by is the fact that so many doctors who are high earning professionals, who are perceived by the public to be bottomless buckets of money, right? You mm-hmm. You understand that when somebody sees MD, the assumption is that there's some money there. Um, whether the facts bear that out or not. And we've got all of these people driving around with 50 or a hundred or $200,000 in insurance on their car. Um, And medical professionals, I think more than everybody else have a really good idea of what a debilitating injury uh, or a permanent injury costs just to treat in terms of the medical bill liability, let alone if you kill somebody. So we have had multiple calls in the last 30 days from uh, people who have been in a serious car accident involving either a very serious permanent injury or, f- or three of them were fatalities and one of them was a very serious injury where somebody's pelvis was crushed in a car accident. So a and policy- in all of those cases, I'm, I'm sorry, in, in okay. all of those cases, I had to turn these people away because anything we did now would have been fraud. So that's number two is get some insurance. So so hang
0: hang on, I just want to follow up on that. So in those particular cases, they had um they did have automobile insurance, presumably they had homeowners insurance, but the limits on that topped out. And I think where you're heading is that most carriers um allow you to up their limits with some type of umbrella policy, which often doesn't cost that much. I mean, in, in another sense, this is another no-brainer. You just increase your limits without having to spend an arm and a leg to do it. Is that is that accurate?
1: That's 100% accurate. If, if everybody listening got a $2 million umbrella, the majority, the vast majority of their go-forward automobile liability would be covered by that in almost every case. It would take something extraordinary like the example that I use facetiously when I teach CME is you uh, ram your car into a bus full of brain surgeons, right? <laughs> uh, and you and you and you kill everybody on board that bus. That obviously would be a very significant multi-million dollar exposure. But for most people, in most accidents, even very serious ones, spending that extra five or six hundred dollars a year to have a couple million dollar umbrella in place would protect you from the vast majority of all of the automobile exposure that you would have going forward. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's yeah. just its just math. I, I asked one of my friends who's a personal injury attorney. I said, do the majority of the cases get settled for under $2 million? And he laughed and he said, oh, yeah. He said, even the ones that go to trial are most of them are under $2 million. He said that it's very rare that we, we get lucky enough to get one over that. And he said and when we do, we go after it very aggressively.
0: But there's was- yeah,
1: $2 million would keep most people safe.
0: Well, the thing is, there, there are also other collateral benefits to an umbrella policy. And correct me if I'm wrong, um, I think that when Bill Clinton was sued civilly for sexual harassment, et cetera, that his um, his homeowner's um, umbrella policy paid the legal defense, which was significant um, for that claim. And I don't know if that would do it going forward, but there are other things that are covered. And. An umbrella policy that are often not seen or noticed in your regular homeowner's policy, correct?
1: That is 100% correct. And this is especially true for those uh, of your listeners who have children. Uh, we see a lot of exposure related to children, especially during the summer uh, for parents and that homeowners liability can help Pick up If you have the right policy with a good carrier. So again, this isn't just a question of I bought a policy. Well, who did you buy it from which carrier and what is the fine print all has to be looked at with the help of an expert, but good umbrella policies, the ones from the best mm-hmm. carriers that are the most inclusive will protect you against claims for things like bullying claims, cyber bullying, acts of violence by your children liability that's incurred. Um, at your home, so whether you are there or not, if your kids come home from school with their friends and are, for instance, showing off dad's gun collection, or jumping <laughs> off the roof into the pool, or both or, at or, the same time, or, or, <laughs> both at the same time, or riding the ATCs across the golf course uh, at the country club that you happen to live next to, uh, all, and get injured. All of these are actual real things from uh, either my childhood or my client base. I won't, give, I won't tell you which ones are which, but, but uh, these are things that we see routinely. Uh, and the one issue that doctors have in terms of looking at themselves um, and appraising their own risk is the only thing most doctors ever think about or worry about is professional risk. Right. And there are many other risk factors out there that have nothing to do with your medical practice that are very commonly things that we have to address after something bad happens.
0: All right, so you've said disability insurance for um, certainly for the young who are getting started and even as we age, everybody should do that. Number two, low cost, high yield, high limit insurance typically in an umbrella policy. Now, move on to the next bucket. What other types of insurance would be those that uh, make sense for the vast majority of physicians, regardless of amount of assets they hold and or their age?
1: Well, um, we increasingly see life insurance becoming an important part of somebody's go-forward plan and the emergency plan for their family. And unfortunately, we don't discover where those, de- many families don't discover where those deficiencies are until a tragedy happens. Uh, we also ask young physicians who have very significant student debt that may be six figures. If their parents or some other individual has guaranteed that debt for them, I will mm-hmm. say to a young single doctor, Hey, why don't you go out and get a half million or million dollar term policy for a few hundred dollars a year that protects those who guaranteed your student loan from this liability in the event of your death. And that is, it's interesting to see how people react to that. And in most cases it's, yeah, oh my God, I never thought of that before. I thought I, I was thought young. And uh,
0: yeah. I never thought of it. I thought I was young and single,
1: so why would I have life insurance? Well, because mom and dad signed a $300,000 note for you. How about that? (laughs) that, (laughs) That's one, one good reason. Obviously, we want it to be there also as an income replacement tool. If there is a tragedy and we lose somebody who's still in the prime of their career and and earning or who is the primary breadwinner. And I see lots of physicians who are married to someone else who may also be working, but whose income is a fraction of what the physician spouse's income is. So I don't sell a life insurance, again, but the way that I talk about it when clients ask me, how much life insurance should we have, I say, well, I give my lawyer disclaimer which is I'm an attorney and I don't sell life insurance and your financial advisor will certainly have different ideas, but my advice is have enough life insurance death benefit to generate income, not to spend it. So, you know, and back in 1959, somebody said that, you know, you having a million dollar life insurance policy was like winning the lottery and your family was set forever. Well, back in 1959, that was true. But in 2019, if you're making 350 grand a year, that's three years of income.
0: right, right.
1: Uh, that's going yeah. to your family. So what I say is, look, every million dollars in death benefit that you have, conservatively invested in a portfolio that is designed to minimize capital risk, will generate how much money in your opinion. And the numbers I get back are four percent, five percent, six percent. That's what people say to me. So if if we take a five percent number and assume that you get lucky and you have a five percent annual rate of return on every million dollars, every million dollars in death benefit that you have will leave your spouse and children 50 grand a year in pre-tax income.
0: Right. That's brilliant. And that is
1: insufficient for the majority of the people that I work with.
0: Right. And so what you need to do is just back into a calculation. What you're suggesting is you, it's a nest egg replacement. You're trying to create a a pool of money that will generate income um, so that your loss, although you'll be missed emotionally, won't you won't be missed financially.
1: That is exactly correct.
0: OK, so life insurance. Um, keep going with insurance because that's a big layer and, and it's an important layer that. Um, you don't have to do it all at once, but it's the type of thing you want to commit to a plan over time. So keep going.
1: Sure. Well, look, those are, those are some of the basics, I think, that apply to everyone. Um, mm-hmm. you know, so we, we started this part of our conversation with, hey, what, what are the basics that would work for both a 30-year-old and a 50-year-old? Yes. And so those are those basics. Let's talk now and switch gears from personal insurance issues, which we covered, which were disability, a personal liability umbrella, and life insurance back over to the full liability insurance side. Let's yes. talk about what doctors are are fixated on, what I call risk myopia. And let's talk a little bit about your professional liability coverage. Excellent. What we see in, in many cases and almost universally across the United States is that doctors are carrying the, the traditional 1-3 policy, right? A million per mm-hmm. occurrence, $3 million aggregate. Some of you buy more than that uh, and, you know, have have heard advice from people like myself, which is buy it until it hurts, and you have higher limits of coverage. So great, we understand that you have to have that medical malpractice or professional liability insurance. Then, of course, if you own a business um, or own a practice, you're going to want to have some general liability insurance, right? So if I come to your practice and fall down or trip on the sidewalk, or get hit by somebody in the parking lot, uh, or my child gets hit by another driver in the parking lot, then the practice is covered for those kinds of issues. That's the general liability insurance. But in between those two is, you know, in between the patient liability insurance and the general liability insurance is a big gap that most doctors who own a practice still routinely overlook. So, number one, we want to make sure that every physician that is a practice owner has seven figures in data breach and cyber liability
0: insurance.
1: Mm -hmm. We are in the age of ransomware. We are in the age of online. Organized crime has moved online. It is a multi-trillion dollar international enterprise and hacking medical practices which have high value information, which includes both HIPAA information and PII, the personal, the patient identifying information, which is social security numbers, account numbers, dates of birth. Every physician has a personal legal liability, professional liability for protecting that information. And when there is a breach, the costs can be extremely onerous. Uh, there's there's a practice here in Arizona that turned out to have a drug addict working in their billing department. And they had to inform 40,000 patients that their credit cards could have been exposed. So they had to tell everybody in their file.
0: That was probably not a comfortable conversation. But um, follow up on that, you talk about having the right limits. I know that many, perhaps all, professional liability carriers give HIPAA insurance, cybersecurity insurance, with low limits, limits to the, on the order of twenty-five or fifty thousand dollars, and I can't tell you the number of doctors I've spoken with that say, "Hey, I'm already covered. I don't need to worry about it." <laughs> I, I cannot. I can't even imagine how quickly that twenty-five or fifty k would fly out the door um, without having, you know, gotten the job done. What do you think?
1: Uh, yeah, th- those limits are are vastly in- insufficient. Uh, we like to see seven figures in coverage on that issue. We also like to see this is another area where we get the same response that you just gave me, gave me which is, hey, I've got a, a rider on my basic policy of 50 grand or 25 grand for the data breach. People say the same thing about their EPLI, which stands for Employment Practices Liability Insurance, yeah. but which consumers refer to as Employee Lawsuit Insurance because it's the same four letters in the acronym
0: and it is, it's also correct.
1: accurate. Uh, So it's so EPLI insurance is another thing that's often handled the same way where I ask one of my physician clients as part of the sort of onboarding fact finding exam process. Hey, do you have A, B, C and D? And if they answer yes, then I ask what the limits are and I inform them that merely having. Riders of twenty-five or fifty thousand dollars on areas like this that have six and seven figures liabilities attached to them is insufficient. Um, it is not enough coverage, and it shares the limits of your base medical malpractice policy as well.
0: Yeah, it's true. So it,
1: all right, so I don't like shared limits, and I don't like low limits on those issues in particular. And when docs argue with me about this, I ask them if they know what the average sexual harassment verdict in this country is. And they routinely respond that they do not. And the answer is that it's five hundred and thirty thousand dollars. That's the award without the cost of the litigation itself.
0: And those can be very expensive lawsuits to litigate just to defend and show up, etc. And What's interesting is that the cost of purchasing those types of policies, in particular an EPLI or employment, li- employment practice liability insurance policy, it's not crazy expensive. It's actually, it's actually a drop in the bucket, certainly compared to what most people are paying for professional liability. Because it's reasonably low, you get to sleep well at night.
1: Absolutely. Uh, to give you an idea, and again, I don't sell insurance and this isn't a quote, Neither okay. do I. Neither uh, do I. Right. But but I recently had a cardiology practice where the owner is my client and I insisted that they get quotes on a bunch of this kind of coverage that they were missing. And we had a top-notch multi-line commercial insurance broker go in. And for data breach, cyber liability, rack audit insurance, which covers the Medicare, Medicaid Payer audit audits. Mm-hmm. D O insurance which is directors and officers insurance and high limits of general liability insurance to protect the building and the practice from all of the other slip and fall type claims um by the way slip and fall claims are the leading cause of uh workers comp and workplace injury claims as well um we we had this person get a quote and to get a million dollars in each of the areas that I just rattled off, added up to about $14,000 a year for a high-grossing cardiology practice. What that did was provided a $6 million cushion against any of those exposures um, for, for that amount of money. And when the practice owner predictably balked at adding that expense, I explained to him that the first time he had an exposure in any one of those areas and I had to walk him into qualified counsel's office to be represented, the retainer payment would probably be somewhere between ten and $20,000 to the lawyer on the first day on just one of those issues. And that, that same expense... Would have protected him not only from that cost of defense, but against all of those other issues that we just discussed.
0: Well, everybody has insurance. Everybody has insurance. They just are self-insured at that point in time. And I think if the cost is, (laughs) if it's too crazy high for you, then figure out how to balance that amount of self-insurance. Meaning that you retain the first layer of risk, first 10000 20000 whatever it is, a number that you would not be happy paying, but won't wipe you out the way a $2 million uh, settlement uh, or, or judgment would.
1: Exactly. And if you can't afford the million dollar coverage in all those areas that I just talked about, exactly as you said, increase your deductible. And start with a lower limit and raise it when you can. So I would say that, yes, a $20,000 deductible with a half million dollar limit is certainly going to beat all day, every day, the $50,000 rider on your medical malpractice policy. And that phrase self insured always makes me cringe. You are either insured or uninsured. There is no such thing as self insured, (laughs) um, in my opinion. And part of the Part, part of the advantage of having some wealth and being a high-earning professional is that you can take a small amount of money that is predictable and finite on a monthly or annual basis and transfer a huge amount of risk to a third-party insurance company for that amount of money every year. That is part of the power of wealth, and people don't use that power to protect themselves.
0: I mean, what you're doing is you're sleeping well at night. I, I've heard people say, um, I just don't like having this or that bucket of insurance because it's never happened to me. And here's my argument you know, I have life insurance among other types of insurance, and I actually don't feel cheated if I don't die. It's not a horrible outcome for me. <laughs> you know, I've got good outcomes either way. So if I live, great. Uh, I don't cash in that policy. If I die, then the people who will benefit will you know, we'll be glad I made that decision. So, um, you know, it is funny. Physicians as a group tend to, uh, although we are extremely well paid for what we do, we tend to be not so forward thinking about risk mitigation and having a long-term plan to, to think about these risks. Because when it happens, if you're not prepared, it's too late. At that point, you're paying out of pocket. And to your point, You're right. Insurance is distribution of risk, Um, mitigation of risk and distribution of risk. If it's concentrated in just you, by definition, it's not insurance. So I would agree with you on self-insurance is is an oxymoron. It makes it makes no sense. Absolutely. Um, All right. So um, I do want to ask you about professional liability coverage because doctors do think about that. And there's an interesting statistic that I saw which said that. Many, if not most, doctors have $1 million and $3 million aggregate limits. And uh, in the vast majority of cases, even when the damages to the patient are significantly higher than that, um, if you do settle, it'll be within policy limits, meaning that $1 and $3 million are adequate for the vast majority of cases. We've also seen data which suggest that settlements and judgments for those who carry higher limits like 2 and 4 million are higher. The conclusion being that you if you have um, more insurance in the professional liability domain, uh, you're more likely to be the deeper pocket who pays the you know pays out the larger amount because you'll be the one that has more. And I know there's a lot of tension between that, particularly since getting the higher limit for professional liability is is really expensive. The numbers that you're talking about for that giant bucket of business liability, uh, buy, uh, liability risk is reasonable, it's low, it's not crazy, but the difference you know, for a neurosurgeon between a $1 and $2 million policy is not pocket change. It's a pretty significant amount. So, so talk about the tension, and then that may be a reasonable segue to start talking about some of the legal backstops to, to make sure the other side behaves in a more reasonable fashion um, because insurance works together with legal domains to um, to keep you out of harm's way
1: yeah that, that your question makes a lot of sense to me and, and frankly jeff it's not one that 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 idea that you shouldn't have too much insurance because you it makes you a bigger target. That wives tale m- applies not just to professional liability insurance but i have seen that same bad advice given from one doctor to another like a communicable disease in multiple social media formats where there are facebook groups or twitter discussion groups or linkedin groups where i've heard that same thing said about liability insurance and that is exceptionally bad advice um again Look, I, I get that professional liability insurance, medical malpractice insurance is expensive. I, I work with a couple thousand doctors across the country. I've got a dozen in my own family. I'm very well aware of what the costs are. I'm also very well of what the costs of not having enough insurance are uh, and the effect that it takes on an individual, their family, their future, their marriage. Everything can be lost. Um, when these kinds of financial pressures come into play. And so I think the expense is worth it. I get that it is not realistic for doctors in most cases to double or triple that baseline per occurrence coverage from a million to two million to three million. There are some in very high risk professions who choose to do that. And there are some in lower risk professions where the coverage limits were more affordable who also decide to do that. I will say that you know that I've been doing what I do for the last 16 years as an asset protection attorney, which means I'm, I'm a proactive defense planner, really. I'm trying to win every fight before it starts. But before that, I was the bad guy. I was on the litigation side. So I've seen things from the other side. And I'll just put it to you this way. Yes, it's exciting, to know that there is coverage in place that will cover the liability that a plaintiff's attorney is complaining of. It's good to know that that coverage is there, and that is something that certainly they will go after. But the idea that if you don't have any coverage beyond that those basic limits, then your liability ends is absolutely incorrect. If we, as attorneys, feel that the individual behind the policy has both liability and collectible assets, meaning assets Mm -hmm. we can actually reach. We are not just going to walk away from the table, we meaning the lawyers. Remember that the 33% that you see advertised on TV can be 50 or even 66% if it goes to trial. The law firm has become a partner in a business venture and if the individual is collectible beyond the limits of the insurance and the liability justifies pursuing them beyond the limits of the insurance and that liability could be pre-judgment liability or post-judgment liability right so in some cases something happens and they'll look at what happened and they'll say let's get as much as we can from the carrier We don't think we're going to get much more than that at trial. And this could be a car accident or it could be a med mal claim. And then we'll say, look, the carrier has offered us $500,000 against your million-dollar policy. We're going to take that and move on. Fine. That is the best-case scenario. Then there are many other real world scenarios where that is not the case, where something egregious has happened, where there is an unsympathetic defendant, or there is a sympathetic plaintiff. Um, you know, and remember that you know a lot of this a lot of this turns on who who was believed more and who told a better story and who looked cuter on a particular day. These are subjective decisions that are made, made by third parties about your financial future. Uh, so, in those cases where there is a fact pattern where that could lead to liability in excess of the policy, then we go to the other thing you mentioned, which is what do we do to try and limit the exposure to the policy, and what can we do to make the policy more effective and complete source of recovery for someone who has a claim against you? And the answer is, don't have assets available. That means don't have non-qualified taxable assets and savings and investments in your own name. Have them in a legal structure. Don't have the three rental houses in your own name. And that's a whole other area of liability. Have those wrapped up. If those things produce, if for instance, if you have your investment real estate properly owned in separate LLCs, if the fact pattern demands that, great. The next question is who owns the LLCs because the income coming out of those investments that you worked so hard for is also exposed to your creditors. So they might not be able to take the rental house that's in the LLC. They might not be able to take the LLC itself, but they can sure as hell take every dollar that comes out of it and is sent to you personally if they have a judgment against you. If you have a home that has significant value above your state's homestead limit, then you should certainly look at strategies that might be available to protect your home. So I recently got a call from one of those four turndown calls that I mentioned early in our conversation about a car accident. That person owns a $2 million home in Paradise Valley free and clear. So you better believe that, that that is going to be an asset that is going to be easily discoverable and available to the plaintiffs. Um, so we and that house can't and that
0: house can't go anywhere. It's not as if that, that house is a fixed asset. Every state treats this differently. Florida, for example, and we'll talk a little bit about Florida in just a minute. Florida, I think, has an unlimited homestead, so the sky is the limit for your protection in Florida, which explains how some people like O.J. ended up in Florida. Uh, but there are other states where the protection for your home is actually minimal. I mean, it's probably on the order of ten or fifteen thousand dollars, not not a whole lot.
1: Yes, most most states um, have homestead that is insufficient for the equity values and luxury homes that many doctors like to have. Um, yes, there are a small handful of states, like Florida and Texas, being the two most notable examples, and there are a couple of others that have very high homestead limits. Uh, Arizona, for instance, is $150,000. The area of town where my office is, the, the median uh, house price in the zip code where my office is, is $1 million. Okay, So that tells us that there is a significant gap between how much equity you have exposed and what the state protects in at least 43 states. If we assume that seven states have have high or unlimited homestead protection, well, the other 43 don't, and you have to protect that yourself. And again, doing these things will show a plaintiff and most importantly, their counsel that we have taken legal steps Mm -hmm. to segregate these assets from our personal and professional liability, and these assets are unavailable beyond the limits of our insurance policy. That's all we're trying to do is win this fight before it starts, and we have a legal right to do that. It's just like setting up an LLC to separate your rental home from your medical practice. It's the same kind of thing taken to a more detailed level.
0: And the time to set up this structure is before there's a crisis before we say don't don't purchase insurance for your home while while it's burning you need to do it before it <laughs> catches fire you you can't purchase hurricane insurance when the radar shows that it's 2 days from shore likewise in terms of setting up these structures i, I I'm guessing that the longer they are in play the more likely they demonstrate a legitimate purpose other than to prevent a creditor from getting into your assets, correct?
1: Correct. And you've hit on two key issues that are part of every CME presentation that I give on asset protection. Number one is timing. Uh, The only time any kind of asset protection or risk management is effective is before there is a crisis, right? So you cannot exactly, as you said, insure the home after it's burnt down. Uh, And that also leads us to the number one asset protection mistake physicians make which is doing nothing the vast majority of physicians other than some basic insurance and incidental credit creditor protection they got by accident in funding qualified retirement plans mm-hmm. the majority of doctors are still doing nothing and acting late after there is a specific crisis after you lose a patient or have an adverse outcome after your spouse kills somebody with the car, after your dog bites somebody, after your kid takes a gun to school, whatever it is, is not only unpredictable and legally ineffective, it is both civilly and criminally actionable as fraud if you do it after the fact. And that includes trying to give assets away. And yet we routinely see this happen or we routinely have people call us who have been in an exposure, like one of those four calls that I mentioned earlier in our discussion, the person said, well, I actually, I haven't actually been served with a lawsuit yet. So I, I feel I have the right to do this. And I said, ma'am, I'm sorry to tell you that the fact that you killed someone with your car the, under the, in the eyes of the law precludes you from doing this. And I certainly can't help you because I would be assisting you in committing fraud against a known creditor. Eighteen states have actually criminalized uh, um, acting late up to the level of a felony.
0: So you could potentially get out of the frying pan into the fire. Yeah, and I'm guessing that even though you will not do it because a it's unethical, b it's illegal, I'm I'm guessing there are uh, practitioners who are out there, mostly who are naive, that will assist a physician in terms of doing it after the risky event has already taken place. Correct?
1: You are absolutely correct, Jeff. In fact, I have a script that I have memorized for every person that I have to turn down. And turning down people makes me sad. It makes me sad for a couple of reasons. Number one, this is what I do for a living. Uh, So I would love to help every single person that calls me and charge them money to do it. Uh, So I don't get to help them, and I have to tell them that there's nothing they can do. And I also have to warn them that if they keep making phone calls, they will find some shyster who will say yes. And the only person who is going to benefit from that relationship is the lawyer who is billing you at that point. And that is exactly the advice that I give every single one of these turndowns is I tell them, look, if there was something I could do for you that could legally be done, believe me, I would do it. And if you keep making phone calls, you will find somebody else who will say yes, and they will only make your problem worse.
0: The, the magic words, uh, it's called fraudulent conveyance. And I don't know the actual legal definition. I'm sure you know it by heart. And you you, you live it and breathe it and probably it comes out in your dreams every night. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I know I'll you rattle kind of, it
1: off for you. In yeah, a <laughs> do, do it,
0: please, because it is the one thing that you do want to make sure that we've driven the point home. There are both civil and criminal penalties for acting too late. I mean, when it's it's too late, you really can't do anything, but you can certainly make it worse. And the last thing you want to do is take a bad situation, which is potentially solvable, not in a happy way, and turn it into a frigging catastrophe through a fraudulent conveyance. So so dive in.
1: That's absolutely correct. So the terms of art that we use on the legal side are, are fraudulent conveyance, and then more currently, voidable transaction. In fact, the term voidable transaction is in such common usage that it's become what we refer to as the UVTA, which is the Universal Voidable Transaction Act, which basically is being adopted nationally as the standard. So not only is it a fraudulent conveyance to try and move money away from yourself, and let's, let's talk about what that includes. That would include a sham sale. I didn't, I didn't give this house to my brother and I sold it to him in exchange for a note, which he's not making any payments on and never will. Okay? So that, that's one example, uh, giving it away, selling it, trying to transfer it to a trust, partnership, corporation, LLC. After the fact, all of those are fraudulent conveyances that will result in the transaction being voided. All right. Which means the court can say, yeah, I get you gave the title to this person or this entity, but we are going to go ahead and reverse that since you didn't have the right to do that. So, yes, that can be bad. And in fact, I acted as a fraud consultant, even though I'm an asset protection attorney. I was called uh, by a plaintiff's attorney when a physician injured somebody um, grievously and then went on a fire drill trying to equity strip their home, quit claiming a property to their daughter, um, setting up an LLC and transferring their automobile or transferring their office building into it, all of these things were done immediately after an accident. And when I went into the mediation with the plaintiffs as a consultant and explained what the defendant had done to the mediator. And the fact that they and their attorney faced both civil and criminal liability for that. Um, we left in 90 minutes with $600,000 of their life <laughs> savings over the limits of their insufficient insurance policy. And oh, by the way, this fraud case that I was involved in would have never existed had these folks not canceled their umbrella policy the year before to save 400 bucks a year.
0: <laughs> I can see the return or the lack of return on that investment. Ouch, that really that really hurts. And there certainly are cases that are out there where people fraudulently transferred money to foreign vehicles or foreign trust um, after the fact. And the courts had something to say about it. In fact, they said, you need to bring your money back uh, because you sent it out there illegally and we're going to stick you in prison Until you bring it back, you're probably aware of there aren't many of those cases, but they certainly do exist. And there's been some people riding in jail for for a long period of time where they said either they don't know how to bring it back or they can't bring it back. And they'd rather just sit in jail for X number of years than just get this get this um, weight off their back. Can you talk a little little bit about that?
1: Yes, Um, I look, I use a lot of offshore. For planning for those who are actually financially qualified, and it requires a certain amount of liquidity for that tool to even make sense. But many of the folks that I deal with, um, and especially the group that you know that are not doctors, that are higher net worth, that are private, other private business owners, uh, mm-hmm. for many of those folks, it is a very predictable and effective strategy. In fact, in our opinion, there is no strategy that is more predictable and effective than moving liquid wealth outside the jurisdiction of the US court system under blue skies when there is no problem, okay? So I'm a big believer in that. That said, there is no offshore exception for fraudulent conveyance. And in (laughs) fact, the only way that you can get at money that I have moved offshore for people is to go to that jurisdiction and prove that it was a fraudulent conveyance. That is the only course of action that some of these jurisdictions will even consider. So I'm glad you brought that up because there are unskilled or unscrupulous promoters or attorneys out there that will tell people, yes, you've got a fraudulent conveyance problem in the United States, but let's just go ahead and move this money offshore anyway, as if that somehow exempts them from the law or the timing or the fact pattern that we're talking about, it doesn't. In fact, that, that very fact now is the first thing that we have to submit affidavits of accuracy and solvency when setting up an offshore trust and, and working with an offshore bank and trustee. We have to give them signed paperwork from the client saying that we've disclosed any issue that they have, they don't have any pending claims, Uh, other than what we've disclosed and that we understand that this will be ineffective against anything that's pre-existing. We have to put that down in writing and notarize it and send it to them. So there are other folks out there that are still making the promise that somehow their magic bag of beans is immune to the law.
0: And I know there are entities that are out there. We see them frequently um, either online or in various medical conferences where they will start off a seminar with the traditional scare tactics. And the scare tactics are real because you and I and uh, professionals in the field have certainly seen doctors on the receiving end of nasty judgments or settlements or threats, et cetera. So I think we can all agree that the risk is real. But then that moves from a discussion of the risk to the solution And the solution that's often presented is one size fits all. Everybody needs to have these collection of documents in place. And once you have these collection of documents in place, you're safe. You you are considered asset protected. You're bulletproof. Nobody can take anything away from you. I I always have, I guess, well, let me let me state it differently. That type of strategy gives me heartburn because I can't think of anything in life or anything in the law. That is one size fits all. I think everybody's different. We talked recently uh, just a few minutes ago about the difference between a thirty year old who just graduated from their program, has a lifetime of asset um, building in front of them. Then you've got the fifty five year old who has collected who has already built a giant nest egg. I think we would agree that the same program would not be reasonable for both of them either in terms of the type of protection they need or the cost associated, as well as complexity. The second thing that kind of gives me heartburn about just having a a shoe basket um, or or a shoebox full of documents is that it's not enough just to set it up. You've got to have a reason for it and maintain them, none of which are trivial. So comment a little bit, if you will, about this burgeoning industry that's out there, which has tried to make asset protection simple and easy for everyone. And what is it doing, and what is it not doing? I know that I know there are a thousand questions in there, but I, I know you can summarize it well.
1: well. Well, we'll hit some of the high points. And, and again, I, I appreciate you recognizing the problem. Look, my process is just like that of a doctor. When I talk to a client, it's we do an exam. We, we, we give them a fact finder. We ask questions. We figure out who they are. We ask about their risks, right? So there, there is an exam process, which then leads to a diagnosis of which assets are exposed and what the problems are and what risk management is missing. And then we prescribe specific treatment, just like you folks, which is, hey, you need an EPLI policy. You've got 14 employees hey, you need a custom-drafted state-specific employment manual, uh, employment policy manual as a risk management tool, not the one you got free from your buddy and crossed out his name and wrote yours in, which is how most doctors like to do it, or not the one that your office manager cobbled together off the Internet and cut and pasted from four different sources or that another don't state. comply with your state's law. Yes, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. They've got to be state law specific. So we look at all of those things and we prescribe specific treatment for those ailments and for those problems. And that's the way that it has to work. Now that said, it doesn't mean that there aren't best practices on certain issues that can be predictably repeated for different people. Let's take a really easy example. We own a rental home. Should it be in an LLC? The answer is almost always yes. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Yes, that is an appropriate, cheap, effective, legitimate business purpose tool that's appropriate for that asset. But we also have to look at then who should own the LLC, how many LLCs do you need, what's the equity value of each property, how many properties of what different types should go into that LLC, right? So what I see is, for instance, doctors go to a seminar, some kind of medical conference, let's say, at a beautiful seaside resort, and they will listen to an asset protection seminar by somebody who has paid to sponsor that lunch or dinner who is there to sell them something specific. They want every single person in that room to buy the thing they are selling and buy the same thing and buy it right then and there. And that's typically some kind of do-it-yourself kit or a series of books or DVDs or an LLC kit And then what we see is people leave the the seminar armed with false confidence and then use that tool like a garbage can. I'm going to put my rental property, my vacation home, and the dirt lot we bought in the golf course community that we plan to build on in a few years all in the same LLC. And then what we see is assets with different levels of equity and liability all mixed and all exposing ex- exposing each other to different kinds of risks without reason, and that is one very simple um, example of what we see happen with these things. There's also an issue with working with folks who aren't licensed attorneys and with whom you do not have attorney-client privilege. Hmm. So if you buy if you buy a kit and get advice from a kit seller, a document preparer, or someone who used to be an attorney but now sells books and kits, uh, you don't have a privileged relationship with that person or with that organization. They have no malpractice insurance. They have no professional accountability. They have um, no attorney-client privilege. So all of the correspondence with that outfit and any advice they've given you is fully discoverable under the law. Basically, you are working with the legal equivalent of a psychic surgeon at that point.
0: I think that um, after people have listened to this, and by the way, we've only hit the tip of the iceberg here, but I think um, a natural reaction might be, God, Jeff and Ike, this is um, this is a lot of material. This is so overwhelming. I don't even know where to start. So I probably will just not take any action for the moment. Uh, <laughs> my, my, my retort typically is... You don't have to do everything today. I think the thing to do is just make a commitment to get started, get a diagnosis. And then once you get a diagnosis, you could talk about sequencing this. You don't, not everybody needs an overseas asset protection trust. Tomorrow, you want to start with the basics. What's simple? What's easy to do? It it shouldn't this shouldn't create stress in your life. It should actually minimize stress in your life. So if it's not sequenced properly, then then the plan is not being implemented properly. Correct?
1: That's correct. And and I get it can be daunting. It can be scary. uh, And people are also often under the impression what we hear from from the most successful doctors when we talk to them jeff and these are typically older folks who've been in the business for a long time and have a lot to lose when we ask them why they didn't do anything they said i was so busy working making money that i never took any time to protect right. what i spent the last 30 years building and then when you say that out loud it's very counterintuitive but that is kind of the pace of american life right We we get up in the morning, we drop the kids off at school, we go to work, we go to soccer practice, we have to stop and get dog food, and then we have to go home for dinner, and then we have to start over. And where in between doing that five days a week and then meeting our family and personal commitments on the weekend, do we make time for these things? Um, and you know, it, it is sad to see people who have worked for a long time lose everything because they didn't take a few hours and spend a little time and money to do what they needed to do. But as you said, this elephant can be eaten one bite at a time. So, you know, the first steps is, you know, some basic steps maybe that we should walk people through is first of all, know what all of your risks are. You are a um, multi dimensional individual. Bullseye. You are not just a doctor, you are a parent, you are a business owner, you are a compliance officer, you are an employer, you are a homeowner. You are the owner and driver of a car. All of you are a board member. You are someone who maybe is a solicitor who has gone out and said to some of your doctor buddies, hey, why don't we start an ambulatory surgical center? Let's all put some money in together. Well, all of a sudden then you're a deal promoter with liability. It's important to understand first what your liabilities are. It's important to understand then what you have at risk um, and to think about, Which of your assets are exposed? Do I have non-qualified taxable savings and investments like cash, stocks, bonds, securities, CDs, money market accounts, precious metals that are in my own name that are exposed? And what should we do about that? Do I have real estate with significant equity that's exposed? What should we do about that? Do I own real estate that's not adequately protected from me because of the way that I'm holding it? Am I adequately protected from the assets that I own that might generate liability, like my business or the rental property or the commercial property that I bought? Am I exposed to that? So we've got to look at all of these issues to do this right. And I can actually um, send you a couple of links to articles that I've written in medical journals that you are welcome to share with folks that will walk them through both their risk factors and a five-minute self-exam on what you actually have exposed. If it's helpful, I'm happy to share that with you. Yeah,
0: you know, this would be great. So I'm going to give the email address to, to get this from us. It'll be info at That's info at And in parallel, Ike, please give everyone your contact information. The reason I say that is because there are only a handful of people in the country that are skilled in this domain, um, I mean, I, I've, I've had this conversation with many people who say they do asset protection, but the deeper the dive, the more you see that they've got one toolkit that's supposed to work for everyone. Often it's expensive, but no less important, it's ineffective. So give out your contact information, where your website is and how people can find you uh, going forward
1: sure uh you can reach me and and find out and see some of my work and, and some of the 300 plus articles that I've written for physicians um at my website which is proassetprotection.com that's p r o com. Uh, that is an easy way to find me. My phone number's there. If you have a specific question, if you're one of Jeff's listeners and you have a specific question that I can try and help point you in the right direction on, you're also welcome to email me at uh, info at proassetprotection.com, and I think that that should be a fairly complete resource, at least in terms of contact info and some background articles. I also write for Physicians Practice. Uh, and about 12 other medical journals run my work every month, about twice a month. So you can find me there as well.
0: Do you have a mailing list that uh, people can get on so that when you publish new articles, they can receive them? If not, we can go ahead and distribute what uh, what gets published through our mailing list.
1: Um you know, there, there is a sign up uh, available on my website. You can, but I'll, I'll be happy to send the, the links to you to share as well, Jeff.
0: Brilliant. Any final thoughts? We're pushing uh, time right now. And I know I'm going to have you back because I know there's a lot more to talk about. But I'm extremely grateful for the generosity, um, being generous with your time. So, any final thoughts before we sign off?
1: Yes, I, I first of all thank you for for having me today and allowing me to share some of these ideas with people. I do what I do because I love seeing people succeed. And 16 years ago, I decided I'd rather help people than take things away from them. So, any opportunity that we get like this to get information out to people that it, that it may help is is always valuable to me. Um, you know, in terms of closing thoughts. Uh, I think it just goes back to the basics. It's easier to protect what you've already earned than to earn it again. Um, We want to see you keep it. We want to see your future and your family's future be predictable. And the only way and the most cost-effective, predictable, uh, and, 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 and really effective way to do that is to do something today while you are under blue skies before there is a problem. We joke in my business that the only people that we can help are the people who don't need our help today.
0: (laughs) I love that. Hey, listen, Ike, thanks again, and we will talk again soon. So you've been listening to the Medical Liability Minute in this particular uh, session. It was probably the Medical Liability Hour. Uh, We will have Ike Devji back. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MED-JUST. That's 1-877-MED-JUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I I-N-F N Frank O news, at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336-358-5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.